Here to perform America the Beautiful and lift every voice and sing, joined by the United States Marine Corps, 6th Communications Battalion, Brooklyn, New York, and the U.S. Open Ball Crew. Please welcome members of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, music director Yannick Nezesegan, and baritone Will Liverman. box score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's opera box score. It's season nine. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right. In this episode, it's a mixed double inside the huddle when four, that's right, four artists join us to preview Opera Philadelphia's O Festival. We've got Ana Maria Martinez, we've got Kira Duffy, we've got our rival podcaster, Christian Van Horn, and we've got the man of the hour, Will Liverman. Plus, in the two-minute drill, okay, it's Ying Fang. Ying Fang, not Wang Fan. People are racist. And in other news, water is wet and the sky is blue, film at 11. <laughs> Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. You're going to click follow on Apple Podcasts. You hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster or an OBS lapel pin, or you're going to get our newest merch item, which is an OBS We're Number One foam finger. Any of those things are yours just for sharing your own hot take. And it's all through our brand new website, which has been completely redone. Get this. On the website, you can record your own hot take right through the website. You go to the page, get your voice heard, scroll down. You just click and record and you get your hot take on our show. It is so awesome. I can't wait for you to check out the new (laughs) website. Oliver Camacho, it's great to see you for season nine. I want to be happy uh, because it is the first episode of the season, but my heart is still broken over the men's semifinal match of the U.S. Open, which was then uplifted again by the winner of the women's singles title, Coco Golf, which was incredible. A very, 
emotional journey watching that match uh, up and down. And, uh, you know, she really lifted herself up. And then she went into the audience and hugged her parents. And that's it. I was done. <laughs> I was done. <laughs> and then another low with uh, Daniel Medvedev, who looked like if he was going to stay in form, would be the one to take out Novak Djokovic because of the yes. way he comprehensively beat Carlos Alcaraz. I mean, he wiped the floor with Carlos right. Alcaraz. I was, yeah. It was embarrassing. Um, how Novak Djokovic, once again, is the robot and just uh, just did it in three sets. Um, and um, yeah, I was very disappointed in yesterday's results. But we got to hear Will Liverman uh, sing um, the national anthems, actually the Black National Anthem and uh, God Bless America. America the Beautiful. Yeah. America the Beautiful. Yeah, one of those. <laughs> one of those non-anthem well, uh, anthems. You one know, of those. So. Weston yeah. Williams was clearly paying attention. <laughs> yeah. to I the, was. Uh, I was paying attention. I've been thinking a lot about the tradition of the coin toss at the beginning of, uh, yes. uh, of uh, various matches. And to that end, I did, over the break uh, of a couple weeks here, make a impulse eBay purchase of a commemorative uh -oh. coin from, I think, the late 1800s, which is just one of the Bayreuth like, comm commemorative coins. Got a little little Wagner head on one side and the festival on the other. So I am waiting for that opportunity. Someone out there needs someone to flip a coin at the start of a match, and I've got the coin. I'm ready to go. It's an antique. I don't want to do it more than once, but please let me know and I'll come and uh, start your game for you. Man, I said bring it for season nine, and you brought it, Weston. That's oh, insane. Yeah. Ashley Hardgrave, uh, good luck trying to beat that. Uh, you know, I mean, as our podcast can now officially be in fourth grade in public school, um, <laughs> it also is the opening weekend of the NFL season. So I provide an opening week roundup for you. Uh, first of all, holy cow, the Lions and Chiefs game was incredible lions are going to be the team to watch this year for them to take out Mahomes in the opening game at arrowhead 21 20 it was excellent it was an incredible game and i'm somebody so like chiefs fans are insufferable but the chiefs themselves like it's a decent team hey. uh but still the fact that the lions came out and did what they did it was just like oh you know you just have it in your heart for them so that was great um so that was thursday the rest of the games that happen over the course of the weekend, uh, you know, the Bears, uh, you know, we don't have Karen <laughs> Rogers to deal with on the Packers anymore. But there's a lot of a lot of things wrapped up in that rivalry. But I don't want anybody who is a Bears fan to get too downtrodden. This is game one. There are many more weeks in the season. The Cowboys won pretty hard last night into that. Yikes. I say, ugh, and don't get me started on the Jets Bills game that is happening right now as we speak. Although they were on a uh, they were on a shelter in place order because of weather, but I think the game has actually started. Season nine starts now. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So as you've been hearing over these past few weeks, uh, O Festival begins later this month. And we have not one, not two, not three, but four interviews with artists appearing this season. And we're doing them two at a time, mixed doubles style. <laughs> and we'll begin with uh, an interview featuring Ana Maria Martinez, who sings the role of uh, Amelia in Simon Bocanegra, and Christian Van Horn, who sings the role of Fiesco in that same production. Simon Bocanegra stars Quinn Kelsey in the title role, is directed by uh, tenor Lawrence Dale, and is conducted by Corrado Rovaris. 
uh, I'll say in this interview, I try to uh, get um, Christian Van Horn to talk about his thirst trap moment when he uh, filled in for Matthew Rose in Luchi de Lamamore and wore that cardigan that made all of us uh, very new fan. He gained a lot of new fans with that cardigan sweater. Um, and of course, I fangirl over Ana Maria Martinez and her amazing performance in the HD broadcast of Don Giovanni from just a few months ago. Uh, but before we dive into this interview, uh, let's hear a little bit of Christian Van Horn in rehearsal for Simon Bocanegra at Opera Philadelphia uh, with Quinn Kelsey singing Bocanegra. So on the season premiere of Opera Box Score, we have four interview guests all performing at Opera Philadelphia's O Festival. And we begin today uh, with two of the stars of the upcoming production of Simon Bocanegra, Ana Maria Martinez, and Christian Van Horn. Welcome to Opera Box Score. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Ana, I'll start with you. Um, you, I, I have to tell you right now that um, this production of Don Giovanni that you did with Ivan Van Hova. Uh, we have to talk about it in a minute. So just be ready to talk okay. about it because I thought it was so amazing. But uh, we have to talk about Opera Philadelphia right now since that's where you are and mm -hmm. you're singing Amelia. Um, do you have a favorite recording of uh, Simon Bocanegra? And do you listen to various uh, other artists singing this great aria Come Questora Bruna? Yeah. But, oh, for me, hands down, it's always anything Mirella Freni recorded. Yes. She's she's the now she's our angel, but she was always just a voice uh, from heaven for me. So when I first prepared this role back in uh, to perform in 2006, which was the first time I ever did this, and it was in Paris at the time, that is the one that I listened to just to get acquainted with it. I like to get a sense of what the orchestra uh, or orchestral textures rather feel like and 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 sound like before I start um, delving into a piece, but I don't over listen to it. I want to respect what every artist did and then do my own thing. And it's Abado conducting and Jose Carreras as Gabriele Adorno, uh, focusing on those characters. But uh, yeah, anytime she recorded anything that I, I would then delve into, that's who I listen to. And I've listened to a few, but there, there's, a, there's a vulnerability in, in Freni's sound that I think is part of, of Amelia slash Maria. And now at, at this point in my, in my life, when I'm 
speaking with young singers and those that are finding their own inner voice, I always say, pay attention to the dynamics written in the score, because that's where you get a glimpse of the soul of the character. It's not just the music. It's not just the text. It's in the dynamic writing. So if there is bel canto style writing, as there is in this piece, and you have the messa di voce, where you start pianissimo and crescendo and then decrescendo, that's where you get a glimpse of who they are. And, and that's what I try to bring into this. You know, I'm so glad you said that because uh, I do find that um, I get bored sometimes when I'm listening to um, recordings of certain operas because they're just so flat. And it may be the recording's fault. It may be the engineers who like were looking for like just like a clean, you know, uniform sound. Mm-hmm. It's really in the opera house where you get to hear how, you know, how a voice can sound so different. Uh, in yeah. an opera, like with a Verdi orchestration, when it sings softly, it's such an amazing effect, which I have to say, you do very well, Anna Maria. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you. Thank you. Christian Van Horn, <laughs> um, I think maybe one of the most famous bass arias of all time, you get to open up this show, Il Lacerato Spirito. What is it, a low, uh, you get to show off your low F, or is that a, just a G at the there? The no, F? it's a low F sharp, but, um, yeah. you know, it, it's only the most famous because it's, it's not very uh, challenging. And so they give it to young bassists to learn. It's like a first first rite of passage into that sort of repertoire. It's really for a bass that doesn't have anything above a D. <laughs> uh, and so that's that's why it's so well known, simply because it's the audition aria for a decade. It was for me. Um, and it is the first thing you come out and sing. It's kind of fun. It's fun to feel it with, you know, in, in, in my older self now to actually do it in the context. It's a, it's a much different ride. Yeah, and it's a whole role. It's not just an aria. That's right. <laughs> Do you listen to somebody singing that aria that you love? The, the exact best? same recording. It's Nikolai yeah. Gyurov, and that's the only one for me. You know, especially in these late Verdi operas, when when the bass part went from bass baritone. If you're if you're in early Verdi, it was really bass baritone, which is which is a bit more my wheelhouse. I'd rather sing a high F than a low F. And uh, the later Verdi, the bass got low and. Um, uh, Gyorov had an incredible way with these low notes, and he, while he was a bass, his bottom notes were not his best. It, it, you know, he was he was a top note singer too, and so um, I learned a lot about accessing that part of your voice, especially late in the show when when the bottom starts to dry out. Um, uh, Gyorov was my guy, so I listened to that exact recording. That that's the one for me too. And there's a love story there. Oh, <laughs> the 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 Gyorov marriage, of course. Um, so I will say that Simon Bocanegra is not an opera that people get to hear all the time. Uh, Anna, I'll start with you. Is there something you could say about your character of Amelia that will help people understand who she is and maybe relate her to other characters that are in your repertoire, that in the, the core uh, repertoire that people say, oh, yeah, that's sort of like that situation. I know it's a very unique situation, but just trying to give people something to grasp onto before they go into the show. Right. So the the vocal writing is stunning, beautiful, um, uh, gorgeous lines, all of that. But as a character, I find her interesting, complicated. And anyone who knows me knows that I'm always analyzing everything from truly a, a psychological perspective. And I'm w- when we look at her story, she doesn't even know really who she is when we when we meet her. There are many gaps in her development. That's what I want to focus on. Her mother dies when she's just a baby. She is taken off 
with with a, a woman that is taking care of her. Then that older woman dies when she's still a little girl, and then she's taken into an orphanage, and and then she's adopted by this family who had lost their own daughter, the Grimaldis. So there are there are just so many gaps in her development, and clearly that has given way to insecurity and and neediness and a sense of anxiety. Um, and we see that in her duet with Gabriele Adorno, the first thing she says to him, first she's excited that he's finally showed up, showed up again, uh, goes every morning to see her. But the first thing she says is, what took you so long? Mm -hmm. And if we don't look at her psychologically, we think, boy, that's not a way to greet somebody you love or you're in love with or what's going on, how bossy or how controlling. No, it's coming from tremendous anxiety. It's saying, I can't live without you. You're my sustenance. I need you. We're, what took you so long? And I'm so glad you're here. That sort of anxiety is then quelled once she and Bocanegra discover that they are truly long lost father, daughter, and her circle is complete and her emotional healing begins at that point. And then we see how nurturing she can be and how loving she can be. Obviously, she received love in her early childhood development from Giovanna, the woman who had taken care of her and so on. And Fiesco, also our dear Christian, um, has clearly uh, been her guardian. And I always wonder, does he know? Deep down inside, does he see the resemblance between Amelia and his daughter? Is that also what moves him to perhaps be so caring with her? We don't see those moments other than hearing her, Amelia, tell Gabriele, I do, I do love him like a father. Yes. He knows that. However, I'm, I'm fraught with fear. There are so many conspiracies going on, so many people talking. Anyway, so she's tremendously anxious, and yet we don't really hear that in her music. So it's a way of uh, trying to, the challenge is trying to find that storyline and convey that to the audience. Um, there's a lot of information lacking and she's desperately trying to find out what the truth is, what's going on, what's going on. Um, so that's, that's my, that's my um, analysis, so to speak, of her. It's like when you deal with a prologue and then an act one that begins 25 years later, yeah. you're missing a ton of information. Mm -hmm. And so, and so we, we, we do have to draw from, from what's on the page. And there, there is a certain challenge in that, isn't there? Like we're, mm -hmm. we're not, what happened over that course of time. And so your, your analysis of, of character seems to be, you have to believe it for the audience to have any chance. <laughs> Absolutely. And also I think it applies towards uh, villainous characters. There are some characters and, and Christian in your repertoire, that are the embodiment of evil, or at least that's the, the focus that a character has in the allotted time in which the story is taking place. And in order to portray them uh, in a full three-dimensional form, you have to love them and you have to understand oh, yeah. them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Otherwise, you're holding them in judgment. And, or the, and that's or they become a cartoon character. Yeah. And we can't do that. We have to give it everything. Lawrence Dale, uh, the tenor, now director, is uh, directing this program, making his um, Opera Philadelphia debut. Um, he, I know him from his like recordings of like French arias and his Orfeo with René Jacob. Do you sense that he is a singer as he is uh, staging the show? What does that mean? <laughs> well, you take it however you want. <laughs> he's, he's definitely a singer. Um, <laughs> 
in that he can simplify things. He, you know, he's very good at getting, um, giving an objective. He's, he, he doesn't in, in the, in the amount that I've worked with him, I never felt that we were trying to land on the subtext. Let's just start with the text. Mm-hmm. And what's what's our journey through this scene? What do I need to accomplish? Point A to point B. And so to that end, I can tell that he's a singer and not overthinking. Emotion is emotion. You know, if Fiesco is feeling jealous or Fiesco is feeling angry or betrayed or vengeful, these are emotions everybody can tap into. It needn't have uh, three layers of subtext to make sense. You know, we're, we can all relate to simple emotions and that's why this works. Uh, he's very good at that. You can, I can tell working with him that he was a singer for sure. I, I love what you just said about him because I agree. Absolutely. And I also have to add that he has tremendous humor. He can find humor in, in challenging scenic moments or, um, yeah, and, and I think with that humor, there's great empathy. So he knows what we're going through. That's how I know from my perspective that he's a singer is he can relate to us and he's there to help us figure a scene out. And um, th- that's that's just a gorgeous thing to, to, to see and to feel and to be guided by someone like that. Mm-hmm. And something that, that we don't normally say in interviews is that it's a dream experience. It's a fantastic experience when we, as the singers in a production, feel supported by our stage director and our conductor. There is this trust that then takes place, which allows us to give our absolute best. And I feel that from our team, for sure. They do feel like a team, which is which is not always the case. If I can yeah. Be yeah. I- I love what you said about uh, being just very straightforward with uh, the emotion at hand, because to me, that's a very um, Baroque way to deal with opera because, you know, a character in a Baroque opera may have like six, seven, eight arias, and you can't have every aria be, you know, three dimensions, four dimensions, five dimensions. If you just, you no longer get to the point of the music, if you're trying to do that, you know, you just get deal with what you have on your plate like right now and do another emotion it's okay if it's just fury it's okay if it's just vengeance really yeah Mm -hmm. um you know i just wanted to touch on really quickly because it's still very fresh for us but have either of you had a chance to work with uh renata scotto in your careers Mm. every every young singer uh passed through renata scotto's uh studio uh she did master classes everywhere um, that was that was a huge part of her career, you know. Not she did do some directing, but she did a ton of working with young singers. And I I worked with her in, at graduate school, and then I worked with her as a as a young artist in in Chicago. I couldn't have liked her more, and that was probably because she couldn't have liked me more. And she was a shameless flirt, and it was <laughs> it was wonderful to be around her because because so often when you're young. You're surrounded by people telling you how awful you are, <laughs> mm. and everything that you're doing wrong. When you're young, you really can't do anything right. So everybody has a note and you have to take it. And it was one of the first times that I worked with somebody where everything was positive. You're doing this. Great. You're doing this. Do keep going with that. Keep going in that direction. Oh, wait a second. And then if something didn't go right, she'd ask you why you made a choice as opposed to you're wrong. And, and um, she was a, I have nothing but two wonderful hours spent with her that were that were a great memory she was she was a, a lovely lovely lady and for 
I don't need to comment on her artistry. Everybody else can do that. But as far as my personal interaction with her, she was a joy. Mm. That's so beautiful. Unfortunately, I did not have the opportunity to work with her, but I grew up in New York City. And whenever my mother um, had the the opportunity to get tickets or to attend a rehearsal or something, we went. Um, I went with no other option, but I'm so glad my mother dragged me. So I was able to hear her live, but as a very little girl. And then I was able to to attend, let's say, ceremonies, for example, Opera News, the first one that they had, and she was presenting. And just to hear her speak and the humor and the grace and that quintessential diva vibe that she had was just... <laughs> out of this world fantastic <laughs> and i love what christian what you just shared that's what i have heard from everybody across the board and okay. it's a tremendous loss to not have her with us anymore and what a legacy she's left what i what i can say that i learned from observing her and listening to her is that she gave with a hundred and ten percent abandon and that is a tremendous lesson for all of us to learn. It takes great courage to just get into that zone and get lost in it. Meaning you, you oh, don't know who you are anymore. Oh yeah. She committed right? all the way. And she, and in working with her, she would show you what she wanted. And then you weren't, you lost the fear that, that a, a student has of letting go. And she made you let go because she would do it right in front of you. This is, this is how far you have to go to make this great. Do you want to be great? It was that sort of mentality. She was a, she was a fantastic example for young singers. And I would add to that, that when, when you do that, you are completely in the moment, which I want to tie into, Christian, what you said, that sometimes an emotion is just fury or vengeance. And all of that is great. And it can, it can be just that. It doesn't have to be tied into anything else. That's an example of being completely in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think Scotto was one of those few artists that could completely be in the moment. That's great. You brought up Opera News, which is a whole other topic. Yeah. We don't have time to talk about right now, but uh, we're still reeling from that as well. But I wanted to briefly talk about uh, two recent uh, Med and HD performances. I'll start with you, Christian, because I wonder if your Instagram followers or if maybe your podcast listenership like exploded after this Lucia, uh, I know in like the, the gay community, uh, we we're like, who is this zaddy? You know, <laughs> I mean, I've known you since you were in a young artist, lyric opera. So I'm, I'm not surprised that, you know, you would, you know, all of those, all of those big exposure days. And I, and I jumped into that Lucia. I had, I had, uh, was Matthew Rose or was it, it was, it was Matthew Rose who fell ill, and I, I and I jumped in because I was in town doing um, um, Rake's Progress, mm -hmm. and um, or Le Noce di Figaro rather, and and um, they just said they just called and said, hey, you know, it's been a couple of years since you did Lucia, but would you come do it? And I I said, sure. How difficult is the the production? They said, well, it's on a turntable that never stops turning. At no point does the turntable <laughs> pause; it just keeps moving, and so. They said, you know, you couldn't really direct it. All you could say was keep moving so that you're always kind of in the center. Don't, don't. <laughs> if you stopped your feet, the thing would turn you right off stage. And so there was a, there was a tremendous amount of just get the job done. I didn't have a lot of time to be nervous about it. And, but to, to your question, anytime you have a big HD or uh, a performance like that, yeah, the, the podcast always blows up the, the, 
the um, uh, the Instagram followers always, you know, you, you, you get a lot of, you get a lot of new, uh, a lot of new people in those days. That sweater, man, you looked great in it. But here's, you know, most of the problem was, and not to be, not to, not, they tried to get me into Matthew's clothes and Matthew and I are the same height, but we're not the same size. And, and they were just desperate to find something that would fit me. And so they were, there were a, a mess of suits brought up from the attic or brought up from the basement to try and get me into something that would fit. It was not, I don't think anybody was real happy about it. Uh, so there was, there was an element of just get it done, get out there and get it done. I, it was, it was one of those last minute moments, which could be wow. so exciting. I think the look was perfect in the end. So good, <laughs> congratulations. Good, uh, okay. This is, I just have to say, Ana Maria. Um, I'm not sure if our friend of the podcast, Marcus Shields, told you, but I was sitting in a movie theater and during the intermission, I messaged him. I was like, please tell Ana Maria that she is singing like a goddess today. <laughs> did you know that you were like on? Like, did you feel it? Like, I can do anything I want with my voice today. It's all here. You're talking about the Don Giovanni production? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It, yeah. I think he was the best Elvira I'd ever heard in my life. And oh. I've seen Don Giovanni a thousand times, but I've seen it once. You know, it was everything. Like you did all of your effects, you went for all of your phrases. The intonation was gorgeous. The tone was gorgeous, and you were a boss. You I'm were such a this. boss on stage. I'm going I'm I'm to answer this for her because Anna Maria is much too humble. Uh, <laughs> you don't become Anna Maria Martinez by mistake. And to that. Oh. End, when the cameras are on and the people are watching, you deliver. That's what happened that day. She won't say oh. it. Oh, Christian, when I see you later today, I'm going to give you a big hug. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I will say thank you very much for this gorgeous feedback. Really, it's, it's, it's very moving and it makes me, you can't see me because I'm not on camera, but I am blushing. Um, I think sometimes I think of myself as a valiant soldier defending music and showing up, you know, it's, it's that kind of commitment. And I love Elvira of all the characters I've played. She's been different characters have meant different things for me. They've gifted me in different ways, but she just gave me this, 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 uh, how can I say permission back in 2002 when I first portrayed her to be enraged. Why do I say permission? Because even back then, it's it's something that um, uh, you don't want to necessarily show. People don't know how to act around you if you, if you have that degree of rage. It's it's like a um, I think to say it clearer. Whenever a story is taking place, however dramatic and intense and extreme it is, because you know the boundaries and you know that at some point, like two hours and 38 minutes into the piece, it's over. And then you can go home and there are no consequences. Um, and I think that she just gave me that outlet, that Ponte and Mozart gave me that outlet. And I always associate the character with my dad uh, because he was filled with righteous indignation. And that's Elvira. And even when he was still alive, I tell him, Papa, my version of Elvira is you in drag. <laughs> <laughs> and and I just, you know, vote from a vocal standpoint, I have been a Mozart person all my life. And I just love the clean lines and also the intensity. And vocally, she's all over the place. Um, but then she she brings it in for that incredible aria in the second act of Mitradi, where she's so vulnerable and you see the full arc of her character. Um, and I I just love her. And working with Ivo was was a school and a half. And he did not 
wanted to become in any way cliche and she shouldn't be. We should laugh because her situation is so ridiculous and we can identify with it, but we shouldn't laugh at her. I mean, that that's a fine line with the humor. She's both tragic and buffa. It's it's comedic, it's but it's it's also quite sad. And we have to identify with her, even though she should make us laugh every now and then. Well, I mean, I would love to spend an entire hour talking to you about how you prepared for that production. But I'll just say that somebody who is very, um, I like watch very carefully to see what people are doing. You had it in your body. Like you were doing something with like your hips, like you were holding them very tight and you were holding your shoulders very tight and you're moving in a way that maybe it was the dress was like constricting you. But in the first act, you felt so rigid. And then the softness comes in and the second act is like, oh, <laughs> just like yeah. these small these small details that you gave us were like everything to me. So um, thank you. I, I will I, add that a costume will inform the performer. I don't know if Christian feels this way, but a costume will inform you of your body language. Absolutely. I, I did that production in Paris uh, before it went to New York. And, um, you know, it, it's a simple dark suit and and. Um, it was well fit, you know, it just fit like a, no other suit I had ever worn. And, and so it informed a lot about that specific Giovanni, exactly what they wanted there. And as somebody who sung Giovanni, I can tell you, Elvira can ruin my night. <laughs> Not just Elvira, Why? but when they, when they sing as well as Anna Maria sing, you have no chance. You have no chance. Title <laughs> character gets bumped down three notches. When Anna Maria comes in and sings at the end. No, no, stop, stop. No one can ever take anything away from you, Christian. First of all, <laughs> your voice is that of a god. And then your presence, the magnetism, forget it, forget it. But that's forget, when... Hmm? Don't, don't, forget don't forget that he, that he plays saxophone. <laughs> that's right. And I have witnessed that. I have witnessed that. My goodness. But you know what's really beautiful about that also, Christian, when, when you're on stage and you're doing your thing, time stands still for oh, that's everybody that's in the audience, all of us. So bravo to you. Compliment. That's a big compliment. All right. Already. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it is our season premiere. Um, and I just wonder if either of you are following any sports. I know that you're so busy, you might not have time to like get to a TV like you know, when games are happening, but uh, I would be remiss to not ask you, especially if you have a team that you want to cheer on as we enter into the fall and winter sports season. I, I grew up on Long Island. And so once again, the New York Mets have broken my heart. And <laughs> um, that's been going on for decades. I, I expect it. Uh, and so it's never a surprise. And so once the Mets um, uh, quit on their pitching staff, I sort of gave up on the season too. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm definitely I wouldn't miss a Phillies game I, whatever city I'm in I go to the baseball game so the Phillies will be back in town this week and I'll be there oh how nice how nice and obviously because I live in Houston not just because of that because I also admire them the Astros I'm rooting for the Astros Ana Maria and Christian thank you so much for being our guests on Opera Box Score thank you oh, thank you for having us my pleasure the first of four performances of Simon Bocanegra at the O Festival begins Friday, September 22nd. Uh, forgot to mention that in the uh, semifinals, there were some climate protesters uh, who glued, at, of talking about the U.S. Open, who glued themselves to the stadium. There's at least one person 
glued herself or himself to mm-hmm. uh, the. I think it was the dude that glued his shoes the, down. Flush the what is that hall called in Flushing Meadows? The hall, the stadium called in Flushing Meadows. Uh, Flushing. Uh, Arthur Ashe. That's the stadium. Uh, like the whole event, the whole venue is called something. Oh, I should know the answer to this question. Anyway, uh, somebody <laughs> glued themselves to one of the cement like walkways mm-hmm. uh, during the women's semifinal, and Coco Golf was awesome. She's like, yeah. Like, I had a feeling that something like this was going to happen. And, like, you know, she, I mean, that it delayed the match for 45 minutes while they, like, oh, removed the protesters. Yeah. Uh, but she won and she was very, very, you know, calm about it. And um, she actually, you know, basically supported their cause. Like, man, maybe it's not the best, like, whatever way to do it. But, you know, I, I, I agree with them, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm putting words in her mouth, but you get the gist of it, you know, so. Stay tuned for two minute drill on that. Uh, Ashley, give us the um, college football update and the NBA update. Well, you know it is a uh, it's a rough day if you're a female sports fan. Uh, literally in the two hours before we came on the air tonight to record, uh, Rockets guard Kevin Porter was arrested for assaulting his girlfriend at a hotel in New York, and then Mel Tucker, <sighs> who is the head football coach at Michigan State, was suspended following allegations of harassment. And there's an investigation into this. The kicker with this is that the harassment allegations are coming from a survivor who was brought into. Sp- speak to his players about sexual violence. So if you thought it was an okay day to be a lady and that the world didn't hate us anymore, I'd like you to revisit that for like just a moment. Anyway, I promise there's other good news coming. (laughs) I'll look forward to it. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is opera box score in our second pair of interviews we have uh two members of the cast of the world premiere 10 days in a madhouse which is by renee orth it's a world premiere with music by renee orth and a libretto by hannah moscovich it stars kira duffy rayan bryce davis will liverman and lauren pearl and is conducted by daniela candelari with uh stage direction by joanna settle we're going to talk to Kira Duffy and Will Liverman. Will Liverman is already a friend of the show. You know him very well. But uh, Kira Duffy is a name you might remember from the 2007 documentary, uh, The Audition, which followed a number of singers who were finalists in that year's Met Council audition, including uh, Ryan McKinney, friend of the show, Angela Mead, Jamie Barton, Michael Fabiano, Alex Schrader, Amber Wagner, and Kira Duffy. Returning to Upper Box Score, Will Liverman. Hello again. Hey, hey, it's good to see you. And then welcoming for the first time, soprano Kira Duffy. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. So, Kira, I feel like you have this reputation as like this new music girl. And I do just I just heard before we started recording that you're a mom and you have two kids and I can't even imagine that it's been that long since you were, you know, uh, on uh, that that film, the audition. And I felt like maybe you were like 22 or something like that. Uh, no, I wasn't that young. I think I was 27. Oh, okay. 27, yeah. So I feel like that was just yesterday, but obviously some time has passed <laughs> since that movie came out. Um, and I I've never heard you sing in person. I only know you from. Uh, recordings, but um, this is a return to you to Opera Philadelphia because uh, you were a part of that big splash with Breaking the Waves. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's actually my hometown company. So oh. I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs. And so, um, yeah, Opera, Opera Philadelphia has really played a really important role in my life as a performing artist. I think they were the very first professional company to give me a job. Um, hmm. I think it was in Chenarentola, maybe in- Oh, you're like Tisbe or Clorinda, one of those? Girls. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, in a crazy production. And they, I think I've been here, I was trying to remember, I think six or seven times. Um, so yeah, it's it's wonderful to be back. Obviously my hometown company, but I'm super proud that my hometown company also happens to be, I'm talking like it's like I own it, <laughs> like my hometown company. That <laughs> um, they really are kind of, I think, on the cutting edge of our discipline. And, um, you know, it was, yes, it was an honor to be a part of Breaking the Waves that felt like a unicorn kind of experience. Um, and that was actually the last time I was here, but I'm thrilled to be doing this piece. It's 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 a special one, I think. Well, we'll talk about that piece in a second. And I'll just say that like as far as like where Opera Philadelphia fits like in the American landscape, I do sense they're trying to maintain a tradition and do pieces like Simone Bocanegra this year, which is like right down the middle, you know, cast it beautifully have a, I don't know if it's a traditional production, but it's Lawrence Dale is directing. And uh, I don't think of him as like the super avant-garde type of, you know, stage director. Uh, and it's just going to be like satisfying for people who want to hear like core repertoire, maybe not like, you know, the most well-known core repertoire, but it is like the heart of opera. And not too long ago, I heard Will singing in Love for Three Oranges, which to me feels like that should be in the standard rep, even though we don't I hear agree. it as... Yeah, we don't hear it as much, but it's so enjoyable. It's so much fun. And it's so easy to to be in the audience for that. So there's nothing challenging there. It's just it's just like a roller coaster. It is. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I enjoyed that production immensely. And I feel like these days I do a lot of serious rip, you know, mm -hmm. on like the heavy stuff. So to do it with Love for Three Oranges was a, a blast. It's so much fun. Um, so funny. <clears throat> But the both of you are in this show uh, called 10 Days in a Madhouse. And I obviously have, don't know anything about it because I'm just it, neck deep in content all the time. So I'm going to learn about it when I show up uh, in a couple of weeks. But maybe for me and for the audience, uh, can you tell us what this show is about? And maybe tell us a little bit about Renee Orth and you guys can kind of divide that up how you wish. Sure. You want me to go, Will? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. your show. <laughs> um, so the, the the opera is based on uh, a, a real figure, a significant figure in American history, Nellie Bly, who is really extraordinary. And I'm sort of embarrassed. I am embarrassed that I really didn't know very much about her at all. Um, but she is a fascinating character. She um was a journalist and, you know, was just never going to be relegated to the lifestyle and fashion columns in, you know, the late 19th century. And so she started writing for the Pittsburgh Gazette and she was, you know, writing exposés on the exploitative conditions in factories in Pittsburgh, but then the factory owners got mad. So she went to Mexico, lived there for six months, got kicked out of there, came back to Pittsburgh, had no money, 
and somehow found herself in the offices of Joseph Pulitzer. And among his publications at the time was the New York World newspaper. And between the two of them, they concocted this plan that she was going to infiltrate the Women's Lunatic Asylum, which was which is now located on was located on what is now known as Roosevelt Island, but at the time it was called Blackwell's Island. And it was at that time it had asylums, it had prisons. And so that's what she did um, at the age of 23. <laughs> she mm. played crazy or what she thought was crazy, got herself admitted into this um, women's facility, was shocked and appalled at what she saw. And then, you know, the world had to get her out of there. It wasn't so easy for her to get out of there. She was there for 10 days. Um, and then she wrote a series of columns in the world about the deplorable conditions and the abuse that she had witnessed. And it was a national sensation. It ended up being a book. And so this story is not so much a, you know, a biography of Nellie Bly. We get, you know, pictures, you know, moments where we have glimpses into who she is, but it's really about, it's a story about mental health, the history of mental health treatment in America, and how that intersects with being a woman. Um, and it's, it's fascinating, fascinating work. Well, I have to say that Renee Orth, I don't, I know her brass music. Uh, and I feel like she's a composer that people are you know going to learn more and more about uh because people just want want her to write for them uh i don't know exactly what to expect musically uh will you're doing some new music now and you are steeped you know in many different styles these days can you sort of relate it to any other music that you're singing or that you have sung or maybe music that you just have experience with so that we can sort of know what type of musical language we're getting ourselves into Renee's, yeah, it's, I love her musical language so much just because it's so brave and that she incorporates different styles that we don't often hear on the stage. You know, she incorporates the use of uh, electronics and like pre-recorded voices mm. uh, and just the musical world that she creates really goes hand in hand with the, the, the storytelling, you know, this, um, you know, it's it's very intriguing and um, dark, mysterious. I mean, it's it's really layered. Um, and I just love Renee as a person. I got a chance to meet her, um, yeah, a few years back before the pandemic. And, um, and I've actually worked with her on, on some other projects, too, and commissioned her for some things. And it's really a, a, a great honor to be a part of this production with all a women-led team which is which is fantastic and I'm the only guy in the show uh, but it's great to be a part of something where we're really tackling you know um, just how women were, were treated um, in those conditions and and mental health and you know because of you know Nellie's research it helped with a lot of reform and, and change and um, I think it's gonna spark a, a lot of uh, you know, important conversations. Uh, hopefully, you know, I think people are really going to be, um, we just had our first run through today to get a chance to see what it's, you know, like to feel this thing and out and get it on its feet. And I'm really looking forward to, 
you know, continuing to work on it and watch it grow and then and share this with people for, for the opening. It's going to be great. So you, you brought up the idea that there's electronics in here. What type of instrumentation are we looking at in general? I'm not sure the exact instrumentation, um, but the, are we allowed to talk about where the orchestra is placed? Yeah, it's sure. the orchestra. Tell us, spill it. <laughs> yeah, uh, the orchestra is actually above us. Um, and so we have monitors kind of all over to watch Daniela. Um, and I don't know the specific uh, instrumentation, but. Um, because you can't see them. But also, um, sorry, well, if I may, she's also working with Ableton. So um, there's mixing. We're we're all mic'd. Well, well, maybe you're not mic'd. Are you? Not mic'd. Yeah. So we're mic'd, not for sort of general amplification, but there are key moments where Renee is um, sort of playing with sound effects around what we're singing in real time, which is we haven't quite done yet, and I, I'm sure it's going to be pretty trippy. Yeah. And the oh, and then there's the all women's chorus too, who are the patients and the sound world that that she creates with them. Um, you know, just everything intersecting all at once is just it's a really it's quite an experience. And um, yeah, I, I love it. <clears throat> when you yeah, say able, think, when you say Ableton, I'm sorry, what does that mean? Ableton is a software program oh. um, that it's a sound program that a lot of electronic music people like okay. to use yeah. and yeah. i'm sure anyone who's an electronic music yeah. person is that's going fine. oh that's my fine. god that's not, that's not at all no 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 it's just just <laughs> actually, get, get it in the category logic. put in the bucket so yeah, yeah. <laughs> mr ableton and the orchestra mr. Ableton. <laughs> but i interrupted you where you were in the middle of saying what kira well i just wanted to say you know i think the thing that's so distinctive and really interesting about Renee is that about her music is that while she's dabbling with a lot of you know soundscapes that we're not accustomed to in in western classical music there's still an inherent sense of tonality so it's not i don't think people need to be afraid like they're going to walk into you know a Pierre Boulez you know yeah very <laughs> it's it's quite melodic music it's a joy to sing uh she really understands great singing and so it's a it's a wonderful sort of compliment these sort of unconventional sound worlds with that's still founded in in you know what we associate with beautiful music yeah the both the both of you are really um how do i say this important american artists uh, in this moment in opera, and you both have done, you know, standard rep, and you both now are finding this extra career, this other career, doing brand stinking new opera, like so new that it's like still wet on the page. Do you feel, at least in American opera, where you're mostly based, that there is a schism in uh, just like the community? Like, are these, are there like these artists and maybe creators who are like uh no we have to we have to stay strong and like you know keep it verity keep it mozart and you people over there are are you know making a bunch of noise <laughs> yeah will <laughs> you want to take that one oh, i mean i kind of you know opera philadelphia go going back to the company 
gave me an opportunity to do yard charlie parker's yardbird which was my calling card and you know i was one of their emerging artists so that was kind of my way into new music and new opera and creating role that was the first role i created and ever since then i you know was on this journey of um doing new works and some standard too i feel like i've had a balance of both and i think that's what you know the opera world needs you know i love the standards and the the rep that we've you know stood on for for so long but you know i'm interested in in stories that are of now you know and that are uh, relevant and you know stories that help society and help us you know tackle issues and help see each other as as human beings um and you know and i i think that's something that you know it's kind of been where my passion lies and where i want to spend a lot of my time in the, in helping bring new works to life and being a part of new things uh yeah i don't know <clears throat> and if i may just add i think that's really beautifully put um i think i think today it's really exciting because when i was coming up in school 20 some years ago there was no there was no talk of contemporary opera you know when you did the med auditions you did five of like the standard you know western canon which basically was everything before 1950 i mean i sang lulu's aria and that was considered you know crazy and that's like 1930 something but now um i spend you know my my day job is as a professor of voice it's just expected that on your aria list with these young singers they're going to have contemporary opera so i don't i don't think that that division really exists anymore and i think singers today are so grateful for contemporary opera for the reasons that that will talks about it's very satisfying content it's relatable content but also because it frees them from any aesthetic expectations that an audience might have that you yourself have so i i don't think so i think we've really moved forward in a positive way well, I would say that for a singer like you, Kira, who has such a, you know, a beautiful, you know, silvery, youthful tone, that if you wanted to spread your wings dramatically, you would have to go into Baroque opera. But instead, you went down this contemporary route, so you could still be you and not try to push your voice into, you know, heavier rep that might be more dramatically satisfying in the standard canon. Yeah, and in fact, I still, you know, do do Baroque repertoire and and find that extremely satisfying for for other reasons that you say. But yes, I'm not going to be singing Isolde or <laughs> Mimi or Lady Macbeth, much as I will in my soul. In my soul, I Sing am it. those characters. Sing <laughs> today, tore it down. I I I believe you can do it <laughs> if you want. My throat does not believe in me. <laughs> well, I I know that we'll probably have a good answer to this, so I'll start with you, Will. Uh, this is our season debut of Opera Box Score, and it's also really the start of you know college football and other fall and winter sports. The end of baseball. What are you looking forward to uh, in this sports season? Ooh, well, um, for my football team, the Washington Washington Commanders, to actually maybe be decent this year with the new quarterback. Um, I, you know, I'm a big basketball fan, so basketball's around the corner. Can't wait for the new season there. 
um yeah fall's just a good time for you know sports to get rolling again or at least the sports that i love you know uh football and basketball so yeah i we did our i did our fantasy there's a fantasy football thing that i do with a few opera singer friends and we had our draft on sunday so that's not the opera philadelphia one is it no no okay yeah different um but yeah i I love sports by any chance were you at that like that (laughs) cookout Sorry, what did you say? There was some video that uh, started circulating this weekend or earlier this weekend of like um, Larry Brownlee and Janae uh, and I think Karen Slack was in there and they're like at some giant room and they're all singing oh, gospel together. Yeah, it was a big event that they do every year. It's like a cookout thing mm-hmm. that in New York. Um, I wasn't able to go, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I saw that video circulating around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to accuse you of being there just because you're black. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. Kira, did you want to uh, get a chance to talk about your favorite sports or teams you're following or any oh. parallel to sports that are part of your career? Oh, well. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> My husband, who is yeah. also a singer, yeah. is obsessed with sports. Um, so I like to think I just offer like a counterbalance to that obsession by not caring at all. <laughs> <laughs> counterbalance. But he's in the he sings um part uh-huh. the Met Chorus and he just did the Met Chorus fantasy football draft. Oh, okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. Nice. Oh well speaking, of, I get to next Sunday, I'm going to New York to do the national anthem for the US Open. So that shut, shut up. You mean for the men's final? Yeah, for the final. Yeah, oh my September. god, I'm I will be watching. That. I mean, I'm obsessed yeah. with tennis, so everybody knows this. So yeah, yeah. I, will, I will be watching. Okay, yeah. I actually do love tennis. I love tennis. Oh yeah, okay. love it. So that, and that's actually a sport that I don't really know. I mean, my dad played growing up and tried to get me to play, and I'm terrible. I always like hit home runs out of the. I can never <laughs> keep the ball court. Um, but I'm excited. It's uh, we're doing the Black National Anthem combined with America the Beautiful. Um, so it's like a mix for nice. both. Yeah. Amazing, Will. So tune in. Yeah. Did you give instructions about how to pronounce your last name to? Uh, oh, I should because they might. Yeah. yeah, they might mess it up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Livingston, Liverman. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> I thought it was Liverman. You did. Uh, it's, I it's did. All, yeah. yeah. I thought it was Guillaume was your first name, but it turns out it's Will. So. <laughs> Great, I should use that as a stage name. <laughs> he forces us to call him that in rehearsal. Yeah. Guillaume. <laughs> it's Guillaume. <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult, colleague. Awful. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. we know. <laughs> <laughs> Shh.
That was an aria from 10 Days in a Madhouse, performed in recital by mezzo-soprano Amanda Lynn Bottoms. Uh, that aria for the character of Lizzie. Uh, Lizzie is actually performed by a friend of the show, Ryan Bryce Davis. And the first of five performances of this world premiere at Opera Philadelphia begin Thursday, September 21st, with friend of the show, Daniela Candelari, conducting. Now, I told you guys, I told you good news was coming. I did want to mention, since we've been on a two-week break, something that happened over that break. Uh, there's a positive note for women's sports. People in Nebraska, audience goers, broke a world record for attendance at a women's sporting event after their match mm. against Nebraska-Omaha, University of Nebraska, Nebraska-Omaha, drew more than 92 thousand fans so and that that was like an intentional they knew they were going to go for the world record so everybody showed up for this women's volleyball game so there are some people that do care there's some good in the world thank goodness we finally fixed sexism (laughs) it's once again time to festival O. opera philadelphia is back with the fifth iteration of its annual season opening festival O23 brings a star-studded lineup of 33 performances to six venues over 11 days, from September 21st to October 1st. Highlights include the world premiere of 10 Days in a Madhouse from composer Renee Orth and librettist Hannah Moscovich about the work of a trailblazing reporter, Nellie Bly. This new opera star's soprano Kira Duffy, new friend of the show as Nellie, met soprano Rayanne Bryce Davis, friend of the show, in her company debut as Lizzie, and friend of the show, baritone Will Liverman as Dr. Blackwell. Verdi's Simone Bocanegra returns to the Academy of Music for the first time in 40 years, with baritone Quinn Kelsey in the title role, soprano Anna Maria Martinez as his long-lost daughter Amelia, bass Christian Van Horn as Fiesco, and tenor Richard Trey Smogger as Gabriela. The New York Times calls Festival O a hotbed of operatic innovation. Find out why. Visit operafilla.org, that's O-P-E-R-A-P-H-I-L-A dot O-R-G, or call 215-732-8400 and ask for Jeff, winner of last season's Opera Philadelphia Fantasy Football League. And save 25% on your order with promo code George Stinks, capital G, capital S, all one word. <laughs> no, seriously, that is actually the promo code. Use George Stinks at operafilla.org. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Opera Wire has been contacted by several professionals in classical music, including a Met Opera employee, about support thrown behind David Daniels. The website has published responses in full, including those requesting to remain anonymous for fear of repercussions. From one singer, many in influential positions in the opera world continue to be completely tone deaf when it comes to victims' voices. If they cannot seem to learn that these things will not just get swept under the rug anymore, it's time for a new guard. Soprano Ying Fang is receiving death threats regarding a video post that misidentifies her. Wang Fan is a Chinese opera singer who sang a Soviet folk song on the ruins of the theater in Mariupol where the Russian army killed more than 600 innocent people. In a rare emotional post, friend of the show Ying Fang protested, The person in this video is not me. According to this article, her name is Wang Fan. Stop spreading hateful rumors and comments. And listen, if you come for Ying Fan, 
you are coming for me. The Met announced it has commissioned a new opera about Russia's abduction and deportation of thousands of Ukrainian children. The work will be written by the Ukrainian composer Maxim Kolomietz with a libretto by playwright George Brandt. The fictional story is based on real-life accounts by Ukrainian mothers who made the journey from Ukraine into Russian-occupied territory and back again to recover their children from Russian custody. The OBS affirmation, the Mets' Yannick Nézé-Séguin spoke with Sports Illustrated about the parallels between music and sports, saying, quote, I think it would be good for many musicians to be more attuned to some sports. Watching the ease with which Federer was doing everything and the passion with which Nadal was doing everything is like listening to two different musicians. Like tennis, in opera, people really sweat and give their all at the service of something that's very beautiful. In other words, told you so. <laughs> Lyric Opera of Chicago has announced an initiative to bring audience members who are deaf or hard of hearing an immersive touch sensation of live music called the Sound Shirt. In partnership with Chicago's Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities and built by Cute Circuit, the Sound Shirt provides nuanced physical vibrations of the opera's music and voices through a comfortable jacket that the audience members wear in-house. After launching its new classical music app earlier this year, Apple has acquired BIS, a Swedish classical music label. In a statement, label founder Robert von Barr said, quote, As proud as I am of this milestone, I'm even more proud of the fact that the entire personnel of BIS, including me, have been retained. We all look forward to a future from this increased force in classical music. Conductor Vladimir Jarovsky allowed climate activists to speak after interrupting his performance at the Lucerne Festival last week. Jarovsky can be seen in a video seeming calm and telling the audience, Stop. Let them talk. Please and then we'll play our symphony. Otherwise, I'll leave the stage now. Berlin's German Arab Society will honor Daniel Barenboim for his commitment to a peaceful Middle East conflict solution with the 2023 Friedrich II von Hohenstaufen Prize. Barenboim is the founder of the West Eastern Divan Orchestra, which is made up of Israeli and Palestinian musicians. In anticipation of his upcoming new production of The Ring Cycle, Barry Kosky spoke against HD and live streaming. In the Times UK, he said, live stream and television HD of opera has been one of the biggest disasters. My job is to bring people into the theater for a live experience. And if they have to travel to do that, then they should travel to do that. I don't think the payoff is big enough to say we're bringing opera to a huge audience. It doesn't work like that. They don't come. We should not be encouraging people to see opera in two dimensions. Anna Netrebko has filed an amendment to her lawsuit against the Met and Peter Gelb, adding gender and national origin discrimination to her list of grievances. The amendment has also contested claims that she was ever an ally of Putin and claims her friends and family have been put in danger from the regime through the Met's action. Regarding allyship, Ashley would like to remind you all that Anna was publicized by Putin as one of his 499 trusted people in 2012. Allegedly. All three of Bernstein's children attended the world premiere of Maestro at the Venice Film Festival and could be seen conducting along to the end credits, while the film received a 10-minute standing ovation from its audience. After announcing his retirement from the stage, American tenor Stephen Gould revealed he has terminal cancer. Per his website, I have waited till the end of the Bayreuth Festival. I was diagnosed with 
cholangiocarcinoma, a fatal disease with an outlook of several months to 10 months. In trade news, Sir Donald Runnicles will step down as music director of the Deutsche Oper Berlin in 2026. Runnicles is leaving the position to move to the U.S. for family reasons. The Anna Folks Opera has appointed Ben Glassberg as its new music director. The British conductor takes over for Omer Meyer Welber, or Velber, who has resigned a year into his tenure. On the disabled list, Cleveland Orchestra music director Franz Welser-Mürst has withdrawn from all engagements until the end of the year. The orchestra said the famed conductor, quote, had a cancerous tumor removed and will need to undergo treatment between his conducting engagements for the next 12 to 16 months. His doctors are confident of a full recovery. Exit stage right. Serbian soprano Milka Stojanovic has passed at 86. She started her international career in 1962 at the Edinburgh Festival and was a guest singer at many leading opera houses worldwide, including the Met. Stojanovic was voted one of the four most beautiful operatic voices of the 20th century and is listed in the Villa Verdi as one of the greatest performers of the Verdian repertoire. Luis Lopez de la Madrid, founder of the Festival Castel de Peralada, has died at the age of 86. He directed the festival until 2006, and in 2008, he was named president of the Spanish Association for Classical Music Festivals. He was also a founding member of Opera 21. Ukrainian tenor Maxim Pasteur has died at 47. His varied career included roles at such houses as the Met, the Bolshoi, the Bayerische Staatsoper, Paris Opera, La Scala, and Deutsche Oper Berlin. And on this day, September 11th, in 1693, was the first performance of Henri Desmarais' Didon. In 1850, P.T. Barnum introduced Swedish soprano Jenny Lind to America, paying her $1,000 per engagement. Victor Herbert had two first performances on this date. In 1899, Cyrano de Bergerac in Montreal. And in 1909, the Rose of Algeria in Willis Bar. In 1911, mezzo-soprano Alice Tully was born. She was the patroness of the arts who funded the hall uh, in Lincoln Center, which bears her name. In 1912, a Swedish tenor named Björling was born. Not that one. It was his brother, <laughs> Gersta Karl Björling. Lucky him. In 1935, Estonian composer Arvo Pert was born. He's still alive, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's Arvo ancient. Yeah. Happy, happy birthday. Even though you're not <laughs> opera composer, uh, we stand. In 1950 was the birth of Bonaventura Bottone, one of the best names mm. in opera. And in 2002... It was the performance of The Rolling Requiem Project, which was spearheaded by the Seattle Symphony Chorale and brought together 145 choirs from 40 states, 23 countries, and 20 time zones to perform Mozart's Requiem at their own local time of 8.46 a.m., the moment of the first terrorist attack on the World Trade Center. And that's your two-minute drill.
I never get to do the outros. That was so awesome. <laughs> Bonaventura Batone singing Lonely House from Kurt Vile's street scene that was recorded at English National Opera in 1989. You know who else is on that album? Catherine Zeta-Jones. Of Match made in heaven. <laughs> also, Richard Van Allen um, plays um, <laughs> Mr. Moran. Crazy, crazy all-stars. I'm working on a production of that coming up, so listening to that Drink. show a lot. Good on Opera Wire, putting their money where their mouth is, standing up. Despite having, you know, David Daniels' lawyers go after them last time, you know? Yeah, geez, people just trying to First push of all, the people. that was a pet-to-pet-to-pet-to-pet grievance that they brought to Operaware. Who oh, was absolutely. That was he pled BS. guilty. Yeah. <laughs> it's Well, it turns out that I'm not the only one that was super-duper upset by all of that backlash. <laughs> um, I, just a couple of nuggets. Now, here's the thing, listeners and friends uh, that I can see on the screen, you can go to this Opera Wire article and there are some people who have absolutely stuck their name on it and good on them speaking their truth. I applaud them. Some people requested to remain anonymous. Sadly, I totally understand why they would and I absolutely honor and respect their choice. The fact that they can't put their name on it means we have way more work to do than we thought we did. But two little quotes I just want to bring out real quick. Um, We can all see who liked and commented on that post. In case no one has said it to you yet, shame on you. Uh, And I hope it continues until each of them feels some genuine contrition because there have to be consequences for this kind of behavior. Otherwise, it's just going to continue. So good on you, That was a quote. So just that's your your reading from the Opera Wire article. That's not you. No, no. Those are both direct quotes from some of the responses that have right. been published. I, mean, I, I know you said you set it up that way, but it's hard to tell where the quote ends and where Ashley begins. So we got we got to make sure you don't get sued sued by David Daniels' legal team. Listen, I, I bring it. I work at a law school. I'm lawyered the hell up. Come at me. Try me. I know how this works. Jeez. Uh, and what about Ying Thong? So there we were. Hyping her over the Labor Day episode and bringing back a interview with her from two years ago. Oliver wanted to put her front and center. Yeah, I, I promised now... that that there was no relationship between those two things. Like so, no. we we know? decided to air that interview before Ying Fang received these death threats, which are absolutely it's so upsetting and it's just it's so it's, gross. It's so racist. It's I mean, it's like you can't you know, even say it's realize that they're two different words or two different names yeah. that you're misconflating, yeah. you know? And, and what, what's, what's worse is, is that uh, according to her management, uh, she was getting a lot of messages and responding that, Oh, this is not me. This is someone else. And then they would still keep going after her, you know, like they didn't, yeah. they didn't believe her or they didn't care, you know? Yeah. Some of these people don't need a reason to harass somebody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Well, it was really rough. It's such a gross thing for so many reasons. Number one, Yifeng is one of the nicest flipping people out there. Like, Absolutely. don't do this to her. She is so sweet. Two, like, how jacked is it that, like, this egregious behavior is happening where you've got somebody singing this folk song on the rubble, veritably celebrating the fact that this horrible thing happened, mm-hmm. and then a bunch of racists are like, oh, it's this other person who has a name that has a couple of letters that are in common. And then people are getting very angry at her. And she's like, nope, it's not me. Like, we need to be mad at the right person. But it's just so jacked that, like, our level of vitriol, we can't even focus on, like, the thing that's the worst here, which is, I don't know, Russians attacking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's just, just, like, mad. 
this week. Just people attacking each other on Opera Wire and Twitter X. Now Barry Kosky's attacking <laughs> the, old man the yells at cloud. <laughs> I mean, he's right, of course. He's absolutely right. Like it, it makes no sense. We, we should I... look. This is an art form which exists in three dimensions. You've got to be there to experience it, to believe it. I could not agree with him more. I well, I have, I have a counter opinion actually. I, 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 I will say I don't know how it is in the UK because this was a UK interview specifically, and I could, I could see that argument a little bit more clearly in the UK. Uh, and in uh, uh, mainland Europe, uh, where you know you can hop over to your local opera company and see a show. But speaking as someone who uh, did not originate in one of you these fancy East Coast city like some of you 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 city slickers up here, you know some of some people in the United States the only chance they have of seeing an opera. Uh, without breaking the bank and driving, you know, uh, multiple hours to uh, to their nearest regional company that has a budget, you know, I think that streaming into movie theaters and even online is an incredible, incredible option. I do agree. It, it does take out a lot of the impact of the opera. I think that there are also arguments to be made for you know, uh, when you're directing something for a two dimensional screen that is also supposed to be live, the live people might be missing out on a certain aspect of it um, as well, because, you know, you, you don't direct the same way for the you know stage as you do for the screen. But speaking as someone who, you know, was born and raised in Alabama and was lucky to have a local opera company that it could occasionally do some things. But now that opera company is a lot more financially pressed yeah, um, to the point where they're doing because people aren't going. So it, it's well, I, it's it, not hard. It, look, go to your local school of music conservatory, your local opera company. They exist. They're there. Not I mean, that th many, though, is the thing. Not 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 see, in Arkansas. There are no schools of music in Arkansas. Is that what you're saying? There are schools of music, but they are not going to be able to put on the productions in the way that you know yeah. our buddy Barry is going to. Look, both things are true. This art form is its most beautiful and it's the the zenith of creation when you are live and when you are in house. Yes, absolutely, could not agree more. That does not mean that there is not space for things like streaming and for recording. I'd never got the chance to see Aretha Franklin live. Does that mean I don't get to stream her version of Chain of Fools and have my own version of church? No, no, it doesn't. I wouldn't be able to appreciate Aretha Franklin if I didn't have those recordings and if I didn't have access to that. But his point is that it's not, it doesn't translate. That's the problem. He says, look, I don't think the payoff is big enough to say, quote, we're bringing an opera to a huge audience. It doesn't work like that. They don't come. It doesn't translate. Well, I, I, I don't know the numbers on that. He might be... He might be right about it. I do. I do know that I personally have taken some people to the movie theater to see an opera that were a little leery to see it uh, in uh, uh, in person, if only because they could munch on popcorn while they watched and felt like Delicious. they could leave if they wanted to. Okay. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> maybe we need more people like that, more ambassadors, <laughs> perhaps. Um, but I, I feel like there is. Uh, there is a lot of value there in places where you don't have access to that sort of thing. Like, you know, uh, I mean, I'm about to reveal something very scandalous, I'm sure. Uh, I have never been to a live performance at the Metropolitan Opera uh, in my Ooh, life. What? And the reason I have not gone is because Jeez. I do not have the money to go. I have seen yeah. live and HD productions, but I 
someone who is a known figure in the classical music sphere by <laughs> by dozens of people. Uh, <laughs> there are nearly a dozen of us. Um, there there, uh, <laughs> there are, uh, you know, it, it's for me, someone like me who really should have been by now, but has not, you know, that should tell you something that, you know, it doesn't take, it doesn't take it takes a lot of resources for someone who is maybe not fully sold on the idea of opera like I am to be able to make it to a big company like the Met or even the nearest opera company next door. Sometimes it is easiest to pop in to your local theater if someone is willing to like suggest it to you. Now, I will say maybe we should start thinking about what kinds of operas we put on the screen in movie theaters and elsewhere, stuff that is for more streaming friendly. But I don't agree with Barry on this one. So this is a, you know, there's not one side or the other. It's, this is a nuanced conversation and we probably need to talk about it more in depth and bring some more data. But I think that like, you know, Barry Kosky is just angry right now and he's right. <laughs> I think he's right to say that, you know, the audiences haven't come back after the pandemic and we've taught them to stay at home. And that's a problem. But moving on. Uh, we've also uh, taught Apple Music that it's okay to buy entire <laughs> labels. Yikes. This was, I mean, uh, everything that Apple has been doing with classical music has been completely out of left field for me. I want to know what, like, uh, research data they have that says that classical music is about to be profitable. You know, um, I really would love to see what, what, what numbers they're working with because, you know, a company like Apple doesn't make these big moves without um, uh, a reasonable uh, expectation of profit, whether or not they're right about it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so it, it sort of feels like, um, who's the guy at, at Apple now? Tim something? Tim, Tim Cook. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, Tim, Tim Cook. Uh, like, Tim Curry. Yeah, got into got into a fight with, you know, whatever, somebody at Spotify, you know, and like, well, you know what? I'm going to buy your record label then, you know? Like, it feels like, it's, <laughs> it, it feels so random feel like of that. all the labels to buy. I mean, this is not small potatoes, uh, but it's also not like the first label you think of. You think of like, you know, Sony or Arado or DG. Virgin, you know, of course. Th those I mean, are all of those are owned by like Universal, which is yeah. big enough to give Apple a run for its money. So this is about the right size for them to acquire. Yeah. It's big enough to actually have, you know, an impact and actual uh, stuff. This this is where I start to get a little bit uh, concerned. Uh, this is part of my general concerns for you know, streaming that I've talked about before, ever since Apple Classical kind of came on the scene. On the one hand, now there's a lot of funding out there, which could lead to some really cool potential recordings. On the other hand, um, in order to make a profit, I mean, you know, how long is this, you know, arrangement where all the same people stay at BIS? You know, how long is the arrangement going to happen where they're going to, you, how long is it going to be before they start saying, Everything on BIS is now only available for streaming on Apple yeah, Classical. That, that is a concern. And there that, are, is, that is a genuine concern I have. There is some content now that you can only find on Apple that uh, is not available on Spotify or for purchase even, uh, which is alarming. I will say um, if anyone from BIS or Apple Classical is listening right now, 
this is your opportunity to go into your Alfred Schnitka library and fix all of your CD rips because there is literally a break between every track on everything by Alfred Schnitka on this. And it is something that drives me insane every time I stream it. So, you know, that, maybe I'll forgive you if you do that. Yeah. Let's get the big stuff right. <laughs> that's those 12s of people that know you, they've also been waiting. I have my priorities. Well. <laughs> Before we wrap it up, I love that uh, Vladimir... Yurovsky allowed these climate activists. Yeah. I actually mm-hmm. did go on to whatever the social media thing is and like watch the video. I was b- able to figure out how to do that. Uh, and, and he's talking in German. But <laughs> That's my good just, call. <laughs> it's so it's just so good. He's like, hang on, just hang on a second. Just let them speak, and then we'll like let them do their thing, and then we'll do our thing. And it's. People are giving him lip from the crowd. He's like, no, just let them talk. It's okay. Stop flipping out, people. This is so well handled. Yeah, it it really was. I really respect him. There's a whole movement uh, towards climate activism in classical music. Um, There's even pieces that are being written specifically addressing this topic. Um, And There's a whole company here in Chicago that's based around that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and I do. We, I mean, we have to ask ourselves, and it's a topic for another show. Maybe when on yeah. Earth Day we'll do this. You know, mm-hmm. what is the responsibility mm-hmm. of the 21st century artist? You know, like what are the issues that we need to grapple with and put in the forefront and make audiences deal with them? And I was actually just that this is not funny, but it's funny now to me. Like I was thinking, <laughs> um, Novak Djokovic is like climate change. Like he's inevitable. You know? <laughs> Let us wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Oh my goodness. Tears of laughter, tears of joy getting this crew together. Week in, week out. What an absolute blessing. Oliver Camacho, what do you got for us? A good call or a bad call? Well, I just want to, since we didn't, it didn't get into the drill, I want to congratulate Denise Sousa who will be replacing John Elliott Gardner on the Monteverdi Choir Tour of the B Minor Mass and Handel's L'Allegro Moderato at Penseroso, which is coming to Carnegie Hall and to Chicago. So I'm glad that they've resolved that. And another quick good call, shout out to friend of the show, Harry Rose, once known as the Opera Teen. <laughs> now the Opera Man. <laughs> uh, I was uh, asked by... Um, a producer to be a talking head on the subject of Fanchula del West. And I know nothing about that opera, but <laughs> I got about four minutes of straight content from Harry Rose because he could literally just rattle off like four minutes of brilliant talking points about that opera. I just had him put it into a voice memo. And so I was like, great, I'm going to rip all of this off from you. Okay. With this? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Weston Williams. Uh, over our little uh, a little hiatus here, the studio recording of Lord of Cries came out, uh, which we uh, talked about when we had uh, Gil Rose on the program. So we got friend of the show, Gil Rose, who is the conductor and I believe engineer, and it sounds really good. Uh, we also have friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo on there. It's, and, it, and friend of the show, Catherine Henry. She's also yeah, on that. Recording, yeah, so. it is. It is. It is a good one for friends of show. Uh, I, I did not see it in um, in Santa, Santa Fe, Fe live, unfortunately, mm. um, but uh, it was really nice to hear a nice studio recording of a new opera come out that was so well done, and it's worth checking out, I think. So, Lord of Cries. Ashley Hardgrave. I don't know if you're following the Royal Opera House on TikTok, but... Uh... 
but you should. You should. Uh, and one of the reasons that you should is because they post incredible content. And one of their subject lines that they posted on September 3rd says, more ballets need giant dancing chickens. Uh, so I say this every some- day. It is magical. Um, So basically, they have been putting up, you know, a bunch of different bits of content. And my personal favorite of the last week is this footage of their huge life-size ballet dancing chickens that are part of the production of La Fima Gade, which is available to watch on stream. So follow Royal Opera House on TikTok. You will not be sorry. There are chickens. That's it for this week's super-sized edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. It's the season nine premiere. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about at the brand new website, operaboxscore.com. And hey, that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. You give back to the OBS on the page that says support our team. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is Weston Williams. For co-host Ashley Hardgrave with guests Anna Maria Martinez, Kira Duffy, Christian Van Horn, and Will Liverman, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you glue yourself to the stadium floor in protest of HD broadcasts. <laughs> Season 9 continues with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with soprano Amanda Majeski. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more of the 499 trusted people. Join us.